your farm and your future matter to us. Welcome to Dairy Stream, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges impacting the future of dairy. This podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations fighting for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Joanna Guza. Welcome back to Dairy Stream. I'm your host, Joanna Guza, and today our topic is on per and polyfluorocal substances, and I, our guests will probably say that better than I did, or as they're often referred to as PFAS or forever chemicals, has recently made headlines, even though they've been around for quite some time, and there has been some focus on the dairy community. In this episode, we're going to focus on what are PFAS, the impact on dairy farms, implications, and future legislation. Our guest today has worked with some dairies impacted by PFAS and shares what she's seeing on Capitol Hill. Courtney Briggs serves as the American Farm Bureau Federation's Senior Director of Government Affairs. Her issue portfolio encompasses Clean Water Act and conservation issues. Courtney's work focuses on specific issues such as waters of the United States, nutrient reduction strategies, and NRCS conservation compliance. In this first part, we're going to be focusing in on just the basics of pr a pretty big topic. So, Courtney, if you could kick us off just talking about what are PFAS chemicals or commonly known as forever chemicals and what was the PFAS class of chemicals originally intended for? Yeah, excellent question. Um, so PFAS chemicals, it's really a family of chemicals, as you kind of already alluded to. And um, it's made up of thousands of chemicals and they all have their own, you know, name associated with it. And you'll hear me talk about PFOA and PFOS because those are the two most commonly used class of PFAS chemicals. But these are forever chemicals. They're used in everyday products, mostly water resistant products, um, stain resistant, like your Scotchgard uh, products. They are used in uh, grease resistant products. So, you know, a lot of food packaging have PFAS chemicals in them. And they are also used in fire retardants. So you'll hear me talk about AFFF. That's the firefighting foam that is used at airports. It's used at DOD facilities. So there are thousands of products that contain PFAS chemicals. And it's because of that, that tight chemical bond that prevents, you know, water, grease, stains from, from entering a, a, a product that makes it a forever, a forever chemical because those bonds do not break down in nature. So what we're seeing is PFAS chemicals entering into our water supply, either groundwater or, or source water, and they're just not breaking down in nature. So unfortunately, th that's the situation. They are pervasive. You can find them everywhere. Unfortunately, some areas are of higher concentration than others. And we're going to be getting more into what locations are imp impacted. But Courtney, why are they now considered a problem when we've had them around and have used them for some time now? Why now? Yeah, so these chemicals have been used for decades. And um, the reason why it's becoming a headline-grabbing issue now is because the health community has indicated that there are exposure to PFAS chemicals 
can lead to some very um, devastating health outcomes. There's research that indicates that this leads to certain types of cancer, certain types of um, developmental issues in children, a lot of uh, very devastating health outcomes coming there. Yeah, definitely some really scary stuff. And I know if you do a quick Google search, you will see that they've been around for a while, but they have been hitting the headlines recently and sharing some of those scary side effects that we're seeing. We're seeing these reports of PFAS being detected in a lot of different places. Where are they most commonly found and how can a farm or a processor become in contact with them? You can find higher concentrations of PFAS chemicals located near manufacturing facilities, obviously because they they use these chemicals in everyday products. You can find it higher concentrations near DOD facilities or airports because that's where you see the use of the firefighting foam that I already talked about. So, uh, but unfortunately, because this can travel through our water supply, it's not like it just stays in, in those concentrated areas. Those are the areas where we see higher levels of PFAS. But if you, if you, or to test throughout the country, you would likely find um, some level of, of PFAS. So we've talked about these PFAS being forever chemicals. And when we hear that word forever, that's scary. Courtney, is there a way to clean up the contaminated areas? Information on cleanup is, is still underway, and there's a, a lot of research that still needs to be completed in the PFAS space. And you'll you'll sense a theme as we continue to talk about this, which is there's still a lot of research that needs to be done, not only on the health impacts, but how to handle it, how to dispose of it. There's still a lot of open questions uh, when it comes to dealing with PFAS. Unfortunately, the federal government has been pretty slow to hand down any federal guidelines on, on cleanup or, or disposal. So, you know, I've asked the question, well, if a a farm field is contaminated with PFAS, what is a farmer to do to remediate that? Are they supposed to take off several feet of topsoil and and then they're PFAS free? You know, how, do, how does this work? And I really haven't gotten any good answers because the research is still out there on how to get rid of the PFAS chemicals. I failed to answer half of your question previously, which is how do farmers come into contact with this? And like I said, through the water supply, so for farmers that are, are using irrigation as part of their farming practices, that can be one area where where PFAS you know intersects a farming operation, but also through the use of biosolids, and this is an area that needs considerable research. But we've seen that you know farmers are taking sewage sludge off the hands of wastewater utilities, productively land applying it, and this has been something that has been celebrated and encouraged by not only EPA but many state Department of Environmental Quality offices. As farmers taking productively using something that would generally go sit in a landfill, but unfortunately we're seeing that that's an, a facet of where PFAS is entering farm fields, and of course this is unbeknownst to to any farmer. So I refer to farmers as passive receivers of PFAS because at no point in their operation are they using the chemical. They don't transport the chemical. They don't. They don't do anything. It just finds its way to a farm field because it is a forever chemical and it's not breaking down. Right. And it sounds like if a farm does become contaminated, they don't really know unless they test for it. Correct. And and if that is correct, then how should they be testing? Should they be testing their fields, their soil, uh, the feed, the water, the milk? 
what would be the steps to take if they think they've been contaminated by PFAS? Testing is such a big topic of conversation in this space right now because there simply isn't enough testing. And unfortunately, the federal government has yet to set any federal standards for what is the appropriate level of PFAS to allow to be in your water, to be in your soils, to be in your food products. They haven't set those standards yet. The EPA did come out with some health advisory standards for drinking water that were so incredibly low that we don't even have the technology to test that low. So on one hand, we have a, a serious technology issue. And, you know, I think federal and state governments are trying to hand down regulatory actions without really having the technology in place, the infrastructure in place to deal with contamination. So testing is is a huge issue. I talk a lot with uh, my friends at um, the water utilities, both drinking and wastewater utilities, and they have expressed their frustration with the lack of testing out there. But there's still so much we don't know, especially in the farming context. What are the safe levels to have in, in soils? What are, what are uptake levels uh, for various crops? Um, what is a safe level for the use of biosolids? All of these are open questions. And unfortunately, there's, there's not enough money to go around right now to, to solve all of these problems. Now I feel like the next question is, should they be testing or if a farm wanted to test because maybe they're noticing some of the issues that we're talking about, uh, you know, in their community, how should a farmer go about testing for PFAS? So a lot of the testing right now is being done at the state level, and uh, not every state is created equal. There are states that are being far more aggressive than others on, you know, trying to set regulatory standards on testing on various aspects of, of PFAS. You know, Maine, Michigan, New Mexico, these are states that have been far more aggressive than others. And actually, ECOS, which is the Environmental Council of the States, just released a report that really highlights what every state, all 50 states are doing on PFAS. But, you know, it's that that is a hard question to answer. Should a farmer request um, testing, you know, on their land, in their wells. I like to say, if you look for it, you will find it. It just depends on what level, what level you find of, of contamination. Right. And I think it's hard to justify right now because we don't even have a standard of what's safe and, and unsafe until um, some more things start to roll out. And we're going to get into that into the second part, talking about uh, some of that uh, regulation. So you mentioned that there are some protocols that are already being put in place in Maine and New Mexico and Michigan. Can you speak to some of those testing that's already happening there? So, so there is testing that's happening. Um, you know, we've seen farms shut down in the state of Maine. We've seen a, a cattle producer up in Michigan shut down because the state came in and tested and indicated that they believed that they had elevated levels of PFAS. And unfortunately, that's been uh, incredibly devastating to those operators. So, you, you know, like I said, every state is different, but we're seeing it play out on the ground. And, um, you know, the federal government at this point has a roadmap for the regulations that they want to put into place. So that layered on top of the state regulations um, could be quite devastating for many producers. So before we head into our break, a few more questions for you, Courtney. Courtney Briggs, she's the Senior Director of Government Affairs at the American Farm Bureau Federation, has been our guest. We mentioned PFAS as kind of the umbrella, but there's 
two problem childs underneath those those chemicals. You said PFOS and PFOA. Do you think we should be focusing more on those two items instead of having this big umbrella? Because are all the other chemicals just as bad as those two? Yeah, well, those are the most prevalently used uh, categories of PFAS, and those seem to be the ones that are causing the most concern right now. The problem with PFAS chemicals is if you take PFOA and PFOS out of production, the replacement for a PFAS chemical is another PFAS chemical. But to your point, not all PFAS chemicals are created equal. And, you, you know, you have long chain, chain PFAS chemicals, you have short chain. And, you know, the research is still out there about which ones are more detrimental to human health than, than others. So we've been getting this base knowledge of what are PFAS and we're going to dive into how it's impacted other dairy farms. And last question for you, Courtney, before we head into our break, who should be more worried on the food supply chain about PFAS? Is it dairy farmers, processors, manufacturers, the grocery store? Who should be more worried about it? Well, I I think that everyone should be worried about it, but you know, of course I'm I work and talk very regularly with the producers and you know, they're they're the ones that are like I said the the passive receivers. They're the ones that the chemical is coming to them through no fault of their own. So I do think that is the most sympathetic story. Um you know, the manufacturers, many of them have known for some time that perhaps this chemical was harmful to humans. But I think the devastating effects to an what I will call an innocent victim are the most concerning stories to me. So after our break, we're going to be jumping into PFAS on other dairy farms, implications and some future legislation that could be coming down the pipeline and what Courtney's been keeping an eye on. Courtney Briggs, she's the Senior Director of Government Affairs at the American Farm Bureau, has been our guest and we're going to dive into more on PFAS after this break. We will be right back with Dairy Stream after we hear from our sponsor. The Nature Conservancy is a global conservation organization dedicated to conserving the lands and waters on which all life depends. Guided by science, we create innovative, on-the-ground solutions to our world's toughest challenges so that nature and people can thrive together. In Wisconsin, we help farmers improve soil health and protect clean water while sustaining profitability. The Nature Conservancy is also a partner in the Dairy Feed and Focus, an industry-led effort that includes the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy and Syngenta. The Dairy Feed and Focus is designed to help farmers adopt climate-smart agricultural practices. To learn more, visit nature.org backslash Wisconsin. Welcome back to Dairy Stream. It is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. Our second half will focus on PFAS on dairy farms, the implication, and future legislation. Our guest is Courtney Briggs. She's the Senior Director of Government Affairs at American Farm Bureau, and she has directly worked with farms that have experienced a PFAS contamination. Courtney, can you share your experiences working with these dairy farms from New Mexico and Maine and the experience of the PFAS contamination? PFAS contamination really came to, onto our radar through the, the dairy industry. And it was a situation out in New Mexico where you had uh, dairy cows that were drinking water that was, uh, you know, contaminated by PFAS. And it was because these dairy farms were situated near a DOD facility 
that was using firefighting foam as part of their practice operations. So unfortunately, we have seen dairy farms in New Mexico as well as in Maine shut down due to, you know, PFAS contamination. But now we're starting to see it in other facets of agriculture. We're seeing it in the beef industry. Um, we're seeing it in, in row crops, again, in, in Maine. And you'll hear me talk a lot about Maine because they have some very stringent regulations at the state level to deal with PFAS. So unfortunately, this is really entering the world of agriculture, um, which a lot of people are very unaware of. Courtney, could you kind of walk us through how the farm detected it? They tested for it. And then what what happened then after that they found out they were contaminated? So in the instance of New Mexico, um, the state came in and tested the water supply as well as the milk that was being produced and deemed that these levels were, were too high. So these dairy farmers were left with cows that had elevated levels of, of PFAS, but they also had milk that they could not bring to market. They could not sell. So fortunately for these dairy farmers um, at USDA, they do have a dairy indemnity program that USDA expanded to to account for PFAS contamination, both for lost cows and for lost milk sales. But I should mention that this is the only indemnity program that currently exists at USDA for PFAS contamination. And that's one of the things that at AFBF we're really trying to look into is if beef producers or crop, crop producers experience the same outcome, what kind of infrastructure does the federal government have in place to deal with contamination, to deal with lost sales, to deal with land values? Because if you have a PFAS contaminated field and you want to do anything with that land, you have essentially you know, lost your, your value. So we are working hard to try and build that infrastructure um, so there are some options to help farmers in these situations. And I'm curious, Courtney, with your experience working with these dairy farms, once the news was out that they were contaminated, what was the narrative? I mean, I know there can be start to become a lot of finger pointing and physically the farm is dealing with the problem, but did some of the other parts get pulled into the narrative to kind of share the story of how the farm was contaminated? I think initially after the New Mexico situation, the media came out and essentially asked the question of whether our milk is safe to drink. And we have to remember that, first of all, the United States has the safest food in the world. And we have to also remember that even if there are elevated levels of, of PFAS, this is not the fault of any producer. In this situation, it was the DOD facility that was leaching PFAS off of their site. And, you know, un unfortunately, the Department of Defense has still not fully taken responsibility for, for what happened out in New Mexico. So, again, this is through no fault of any producer. There are extreme headlines being written about the safety of our food supply. And a lot of this is still just out for question. So many open questions about what will make our food supply safe. Right. So as a farm or of processors dealing with this problem, so has the public and the media and everyone else around it. They're still trying to get themselves educated and up to speed. And that's what we're hoping to do here on Dairy Stream. So, Courtney, you mentioned New Mexico, Maine and Michigan. And I know we've heard some talk in, in Wisconsin about 
PFAS, and that's where Dairy Stream's based out of. How widespread is this problem, or do we know the scope of the problem as it pertains to agriculture? So we are learning as we go, essentially. EPA has released a, a few tools to kind of identify areas of the country where there are likely higher levels of PFAS, uh, but it's ubiquitous um, because it's been used in so many products. It's been used for several decades. And, uh, you know, if you look for it, you will find it. In fact, I think at this point, we really need to start talking about the fact that there's background levels of, of PFAS. So even setting a standard of zero, if the federal government were to do that, that would be impossible to meet because it is everywhere. So, you know, we're, we're learning as we go and we're gaining more information with every passing day. And but this is this is a real problem. Right. And when you say background levels, what do you mean by that? I mean that there's just going to be some level of a PFAS detected everywhere. So no matter where you're looking um, at this point, you're you're going to find at least some level of, of PFAS. Well, it sounds like, you know, there's a, a lot of unknowns and this could be very hard to regulate. What actions are being taken by the federal government right now? And is there any individual states taking action? The federal government has laid out their PFAS roadmap, and this is essentially an avalanche of regulatory actions that the administration is going to take over the next several years. Unfortunately, we do feel like the way that they have ordered all of their regulatory actions uh, and mapped this out is out of order. I talked about the use of, of biosolids and sewage sludge that many farmers use as a fertilizer alternative. And that is actually setting a health advisory standard for the use of biosolids is actually the last thing on EPA's regulatory roadmap. And that's really concerning because they need to set some sort of standard so farmers can confidently take these biosolids and, and land apply them without fear of contributing to the problem or without fear of essentially, you know, contaminating their own land. But the interestingly enough, the first item that EPA has on the regulatory roadmap is a, a pending rulemaking. It's It's been proposed that would designate PFOA and PFOS, which are, again, the two most commonly used categories of PFAS, as a hazardous material under CERCLA. And for your listeners who may not be familiar with the, the CERCLA law, um, that's the Superfund law. So essentially, if you have a contaminated site, the government can come in and say this is a Superfund site, and they can go after responsible parties to pay for remediation and cleanup. So it is a what I would describe as a blunt tool. It is a finger-pointing exercise at its finest because you're looking for the person who has to pay to clean these sites up. We think that should not be the first stop on the regulatory roadmap. Um, and I understand that the agency believes that this is the way of getting at the chemical companies to pay for, you know, the the downstream contamination that has been experienced throughout the country. But our fear is that a farm field could potentially be designated as a super fun site. Or as I already mentioned, a farmer is left with a piece of property that is contaminated. Um, they don't have the resources to clean it up. 
and they have essentially lost their ability to produce anything and to do anything with their land. So that's where the land value issue really comes into play. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of work at the federal level. There's other regulations that we're expecting, like For instance, disposal, there's no federally approved way of disposing of PFAS at the moment. Right now, it's being sent to to landfills um, to just sit there. I mentioned that the chemical bonds of PFAS are so tight that uh, your average industrial incinerator cannot break those bonds. And what we've seen is you're trading one problem for another because the PFAS, when incinerated, is entering into the air. So again, it's one problem for another. There are a lot of open questions right now on how to manage the cleanup and how to dispose of PFAS. Those questions have not been answered, but they're moving forward with this regulatory action that would make PFOA and PFOS a hazardous material. Feel like my next question is kind of that open, we don't know, but I feel like I need to ask it. So if a contaminated site or case were to happen tomorrow, would we follow the course of action of this roadmap from EPA? Would that probably be our best option? The roadmap is just their goals for setting various regulatory actions. So if somebody is contaminated, there's really no roadmap for them to follow. So right now for any contamination, a lot of that is being discovered at the state level because the federal government hasn't set any standards. The federal government is very much behind the ball when it comes to to PFAS. The states recognize that the federal government is moving quite slowly on this, so they have stepped in to offer regulatory standards for PFAS contamination. So a lot of this is happening at the state level. There hasn't been any federal government shutting down of of farms. We haven't seen any of that yet. What changes could be made to help farmers and processors with this issue? Well, more research, more technology, all of the various things that, you know, I mentioned a lot of open questions right now. We need more research, and that's one of the areas of potentially the farm bill that we want to take a look at is research dollars for PFAS. And that means studying how it interplays with water, studying how uh, PFAS interacts with soils, because PFAS tends to stick to organic material. So a lot of times it will stick to soil. So we want more research there. We want to study uptake levels in row crops. We want to study how PFAS leaves the bloodstream of livestock. We've seen the phasing out of PFOA and PFOS, but one of the wonderful things that we've seen is blood levels in humans have gone down for PFAS. There's a lot more research that needs to be done, and we want to see that that happen. Senator Tammy Baldwin announced recently that Wisconsin will receive $25 million for PFAS remediation in Wisconsin, which is part of the $5 billion um, bipartisan infrastructure law to help communities that are on the front line with PFAS contamination. What do you think that money will be used for specifically? And do you think this is just the beginning of the funding? And, and is that enough? It can't just be the beginning. There has to be considerable more funding coming behind it. I think a lot of that money is going towards drinking water utilities to address source water contamination. I think a lot of it is going for testing and more research. Uh, $5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but that is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to an issue that is this pervasive. 
you mentioned earlier about kind of the finger pointing. And even when I was kind of doing my research about what PFAS are, and you mentioned this in the first part, you know, it's included in clothing, furniture, adhesives, food packaging, heat resistant, non-sticking cookware surfaces, insulation. You know, th there's a lot of different industries that are impacted by this. And we've kind of said, you know, now this is like the beginning phases of us talking about it. What should we be doing to make sure that we're working together as all of us instead of pointing fingers? And I feel like that's the million dollar question, but what should we be doing now, Courtney, to be working together so that when there is the problem, we aren't pointing fingers? Yeah, I mean, it's tough not to point fingers with a um, situation like PFAS, which is really, we haven't seen anything like this before. Y yes, we've seen other chemicals that have caused problems throughout our society, but this is just so ubiquitous that, you know, we've never seen uh, a situation like this. As far as the farming community and working together, you know, I think that every state is different and I think there's lessons learned. There's an opportunity for lessons learned from the various states. So I have encouraged my state farm bureaus to talk to each other about how to navigate this issue. What are some best management practices? What kind of regulatory actions are coming down the pike uh, within their state and how can other states learn from that? But, you know, as far as the the liability concerns and the finger pointing, you know, th this is that that's kind of what CERCLA does. And that's why we think it's unfortunate that the agencies came out with that regulatory action first. I think there are opportunities for, for us to work together, particularly within the agricultural sector, to, to help each other navigate all of this. Right. And hopefully we can figure out a plan now before it's the heat of the moment and the stress of uh, an actual contamination being in our area. Two more questions for you as we wrap up this episode of Dairy Stream. You mentioned you know, PFAS could be in the farm bill. And what shape do you think it's going to be in the farm bill? I think at a minimum, we would like to see more funding for, especially as it pertains to agriculture. So again, soil, water, biosolids, all of these things that we need to see how PFAS interacts with these areas, but we also need some sort of health advisory standard so we can be confident in, in how we're operating our businesses. I think that there could be some area to discuss liability and to ensure that farmers in, in no way, shape, or form are responsible for any PFAS that may come off of their properties. I also think it's an opportunity to discuss indemnity programs and setting up some sort of infrastructure within USDA at the federal level to help farmers who are devastated by by PFAS contamination. So I think it'll be part of the discussion. Obviously, there are many issues intersecting into a, a farm bill, but I think this is part of the mix. Final question for you, Courtney, what is still unknown or unclear about PFAS and what would you like state and federal government to start doing more about PFAS contamination? You've noticed the the trend throughout this entire conversation is there are so many unknowns uh, when it comes to PFAS. 
And I feel like every day I'm reading something new about either a new problem associated with it or some sort of other open question. I think there needs to be more research. And if the federal government could slow down on the regulatory roadmap and really uh, dedicate the resources to understanding these chemicals, I think that would be a great first step. But I also think setting standards, you know, to come out and say, we're going to regulate all of this, but we're not going to set a standard yet is really problematic. And it's putting the cart before the horse type of situation. So if we don't have that information available to us, then um, it's really hard to understand how we, we should operate our businesses. It's a scary topic, but we're glad to have people like Courtney Briggs, Senior Director of Government Affairs at American Farm Bureau that is focusing in on this and is on the side of agriculture to make sure that we are prepared for future contaminations that we might see. As as she mentioned, if you're looking for it, you're probably going to find it. And Dairy Stream is proud to bring you topics like this to make sure that your farm is prepared and to make you thinking about uh, the future of your dairy and, and the future of PFAS contamination and that possible implications that it could have on dairy and the dairy community. Make sure you stay with us as we continue to stay connected to topics that matter to you. Thank you so much for listening to Dairy Stream. I'm Joanna Guza. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at dairyforward.com.